All right, church, we'll take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 5. Take your Bibles, take the one from the P-Rack in front of you, open your app, whatever it is you, uh, you do to turn in Scripture. Uh, like I said, last week we're, we're taking a little break from uh, working through Acts. We're going to be uh, Psalm 5 this week, Psalm 6 next week, I'm not sure, on November 25th, and then we'll start our Christmas series through December, and we will pack, uh, pick back up on Acts in January after our service of prayer and praise for the new year on the first Sunday of January. Psalm chapter 5, or Psalm 5. Uh, fellow by the name of Marty Duran, a, a guy that I only knew online for a long time, but then finally got to meet. Uh, great guy as a writer. He's a, a pastor. And he wrote an article for Religion News Service uh, called, Where Have All the Sad Songs Gone? And he was talking about church. He was talking about the fact that uh, most of our worship, I would say 99% of our worship, is joyful and uplifting and praising, and that's good. But he makes the point that there is a place for lament in our worship. Lament being a song of, of sorrow or of uh, pain. And uh, he said in his article, Songs of praise often celebrate God taking us from our hurts. Songs of lament recognize God with us in our hurts. And then Mike Harland, who's director of worship at Lifeway Christian Resources, said, In the omission of lament, we miss an important truth in worship. Jesus comes near the brokenhearted. We miss the opportunity for intimacy with him because we refuse to come to him in our loss. And I think uh, uh, Marty was on to something about what we need to do in our worship. We need to express the truth of where our hearts are. And of course, as we come to worship, as we come to gather as the body of believers, our hearts should be full of praise and joy and, and, and worship of our Lord. But worship doesn't stop just because our hearts aren't full of joy that day. We can praise God even in lament. Psalm 5, among many others, Psalm 4, I believe Psalm 3 was as well, I think it goes all the way through Psalm 10 or 12, are psalms of lament. And uh, we'll begin, as we take little breaks between series, we'll do what we've been doing with the psalms, throw them in here on occasion. Uh, but it's a worship song of lament. Remember that this is the, uh, the Jewish people's songbook. This is, these are songs they sang in worship. Uh, David here in Psalm 5 worships God and laments what is happening and the unrighteousness that causes it. That's the, the theme here of, of this psalm. And I, as, as the series through psalms uh, is titled, these are songs for life. These are songs that, that we not only can sing, but need to sing. Because David puts into words very often, the psalmists, whether it's David or somebody else, very often put into words what we can't. And even he's going to say something like that here in a, in a minute in the passage. But there's a surprise, there's a little twist in this psalm, that, uh, in this lament, that we're going to get to uh, in a little bit. Read with me Psalm 5, uh, 12, 12 verses. 
Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sighing. Pay attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for I pray to you. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. But I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down towards your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me. For there's nothing reliable in what they say. Destruction is within them. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Punish them, God. Let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter them, and may those who love your name boast about you. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. This psalm is broken up pretty easily into five sections. Uh, if, depending on what version of the Bible you have, if you have a Christian standard or something, uh, one of the newer translations, it will probably be broken up that way into uh, a prayer or a, a discussion about righteousness versus a discussion about unrighteousness. And it's three prayers, three discussions of righteousness, two of unrighteousness. And we'll look at each section that way uh, as we work through it. But remember, this is a song for them Saturday morning church. As a matter of fact, it's written uh, by David as a, as a prayer in the morning and uh, something he's saying in the morning, but we'll get there in a second. The first three verses, verses one through three, tell us uh, a, a request. David makes this request to God to listen to him. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sighing. Pay attention to the sound of my cry. Hear what I say, what I sigh, and what I cry. I mean, we get three pretty clear, different ways that David is coming to the Lord in this prayer. Some of it is just pure spoken words. Lord, listen to my words. Listen to this prayer that I present to you, this, this prayer that I bring to you. But then you kind of get the image of he started off good. Uh, he started off, yep, I'm, I'm under, under control. I've got this. Lord, I, I need you to, I've got these things I need to bring to you this morning. But then as he began to work through his prayer, it softened. It wasn't a matter of, uh, of shyness uh, around the Lord. It wasn't that he, we're going to see this in a second too, it wasn't that he was pulling back from this relationship. It was the weight of what he was bringing to him led him from uh, 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 talking to murmuring, to barely spoken, just, just above a whisper. You hear the emotion as he prays to the Lord and he just gets to where? And you, you didn't, didn't bother God. It wasn't that he suddenly, now what? Speak up, David. I can't, no, it wasn't, wasn't that sort of thing. And then we move from speaking to sighing to, to crying. My, my cry. It, it, maybe this was truly tears, crying. Maybe he crescendoed here. He, he is beginning, I'm, I'm, I'm calm, collected, I'm talking to God, and I just, God, I need you! Have you ever been in that sort of prayer? 
Have you ever been in that sort of position? These are expectant imperatives. Notice he's, he's giving God orders. Always dangerous ground, right? Listen, consider, pay attention. But he knows he can say these things in that way because he knows his Father. He knows his God because in the next phrase he says, My King and my God. This is relational language. This is ownership And not in the sense that he owned the God because he owned the idol or anything like that. But it was, he was his God because David was God's child. It was, he recognized that he had this relationship. So he could go to God and say, listen, I'm crying out to you. And he knew God would because he had the relationship with him to begin with. But not only in that phrase, my king and my God, do we see this relationship. It's not just relational language. It's David recognizing his place. David was God's own man. David was the king that God had selected for Israel. Uh, David was uh, a man after God's own heart. Uh, he, he had all of these superlatives. He had all of this reason to think highly of himself, to boast, to be arrogant, yet he understood his place. You are, you are my king. I am subordinate to you, so far below my king and my God. But in his subordinance, he had confidence. He knew his place, he knew who he was in relation to God, but he knew that because of that relationship with God, he could go straight to him and say, listen to my words, consider my sighing, pay attention to the sound of my cry. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. This is a morning prayer because David is preparing for what the day will bring. David, if you read uh, Kings uh, or or 2 Samuel, in both of them, you read the story of David, uh, uh, rather, go back to 2 Samuel, if you read that and you read his life and you read the Psalms that go with the different parts of his life, the man had some issues. Some of them were his own, that he brought on himself. Others were just the fact that he was king. He was in a leadership role. And when that happens, you invite this sort of situation. So he's praying in the morning, Lord, hear me because I know what's coming today. I know what's going to, to, to confront me today. Lord, hear me this morning as I cry out to you. And then he goes on in verses 4 through 6 to talk about the evil, the unrighteousness, and, and to discuss the fact with God that this evil cannot approach God, that he, he doesn't allow that in his, uh, in his room, in, in his presence, because God is holy, and God is separate from that, and God does not approve, does not allow, does not rejoice, and does not uh, uh, encourage that sort of action. We see here, he says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. Approaching God isn't a right or a guarantee. There's some language here that implies what he's saying is, I am, especially if you go back to the my king and my God phrase, I'm in a position of power, David understands. I am the king of Israel, and yet I understand my position. 
And my position is that, God, I don't get to approach you because of my position. King, power, that means nothing. Leadership role means nothing. You don't care about that, especially if those who think I'm in power, therefore I can approach you regardless of my lifestyle, regardless of my, my uh, righteousness. God expects certain things from those who would approach him because he does not delight, d- delight in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with him. And he goes on to say, uh, the boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. Uh, these are specific evils that he is discussing, possibly but not necessarily specific people. It, he, it, there's no indication in here even that he is uh, necessarily discussing anything that's happening to him. Um, there's, there are other psalms where he is specifically calling out or talking about people that are doing things to him. The language here is ambiguous enough that it could be just that he is talking about unrighteousness, which is kind of a clue for us later on when we take this little turn at the end, this little twist uh, that we're going to see. But nonetheless, he's talking about these specific sins, these specific evils, but they all lump together into one broad category of sins of speech. Each of these uh, are, are something that goes on with your mouth. Even the evildoer, the boastful, obviously, that's something with your mouth. The evildoer, uh, that word is, more, is, is related to people talking and doing things, uh, tell lies, violent and treacherous people. That uh, idea is people who say things to cause violence to other people. Sins of speech are a sophisticated sin. We are good at hiding our sins of speech. Uh, we, we hear phrases like, I'm just saying, or it's just a common saying, or oh, I was only joking, or any number of other phrases that we'll use to, to back off of what we said, to smooth over what we said. Oh, it's no big deal. It's a sophisticated sin. Sarcasm is a sophisticated sin. Sarcasm, I'm bilingual. I speak English and sarcasm. I mean, it's, it's just something that comes natural for me, and I have to be careful that my sarcasm doesn't bite. Sarcasm can be funny. It can be enjoyable. It can be a great little part of conversation, but it can also be evil and a sin. And I have to be careful with that. But it's a sophisticated sin. We, we do things, and, and, and David understood, and he's going to get to, in a minute, why this meant so much to him, why this was such a, a problem to him. And again, if we read back over his history, and we hear the, the counselors that are telling him things, if we read the prophets, and we read about false prophets that are telling the kings one thing, and the true prophets are saying something else, we see the power of the tongue. We see it today, even in our own political landscape. You cannot believe anything you hear. Certainly can't believe anything you read on the internet. You, you just never know. Just because it's a picture with words doesn't mean it actually happened. I hesitate nowadays, which is funny because in a little bit I'm going to quote somebody famous. I hesitate to quote famous people anymore. Because you just never know if somebody completely made that up and stuck with it. 
Like the quote Abraham Lincoln said, don't believe everything you read on the internet. You just never know. I think there's a problem with that. The problem, what throws me is that when you see that on the internet, online, he's always holding a cell phone, and I know they didn't have cell phones back then. So that's what makes me think, you just can't believe it. Because words, uh, sins of speech are sophisticated. They worm their way into people, into lives, into situations. And they create problems, major, major problems, even to the point of violence and treacherousness. So evil can't approach God, David says. So listen to me, Lord. In the morning you hear my voice. I, I plead my case to you. You're not a God that delights in wickedness. He's telling God who he is. He's speaking back to God what he knows of God. The boastful can't stand in your sight. You hate this. You hate that. You destroy these others because you do not like sin. If you want a picture of God's hatred for sin, look at the cross. That is the image of how God hates sin. So much so that he would kill his own son in order to eradicate the curse of it. And then David goes on, though. This is, this is who you are. This is what you despise. It's, it's part of your nature. But I desire to worship you. Verses 7 and 8. But I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Lord, lead me in your righteousness. And here's where the title of this message comes from. A prayer for righteousness. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me. This passage gives us the first hint that he might be talking about someone in particular. But he doesn't name them. He doesn't give a lot of time to them, just to these general actions. But why does David worship? Well, he's already talked about how good God is, or at least how he can't be around sin. Uh, he, he knows he has this relationship that allows him to go to him and talk to him. But why does he worship? David worships because of God. And maybe that's... Uh, self-evident. You're going, well, that just makes sense, Michael. Well, there, there, no, he, he, he can worship because of God. He can go to the Lord because of the Lord. I enter your house, how? By the abundance of my goodness? By the abundance of my obedience? by the abundance of, of what I do, by the abundance of my authority, by the abundance of my power, by the abundance of my kingdom. No, I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. What gets him the pass? God's relationship. What God did for him. What God had done for him. Not his own goodness. And as it should, it blows David's mind. I bow down towards your holy temple. This phrase kind of tells us that when David wrote this, he may not have even been in the temple yet. He may still have been at home. Maybe it was just it's the prayer he prayed when he got up that morning. 
and he knew he was going to the temple to worship that morning. But before he got there, he began to sing lamenting praises, sorrowful praises to the Lord, pouring out his heart to him. And in the middle here, he gets to the point where he says, I bow down towards your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Now, that's not surprising. They, they, they were incredibly in awe of God, as we should be. But where this verse follows, I think, is incredibly important to us this morning. And all the time. I bow down towards your holy temple in reverential awe of you because I get to enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. You let me come to you. You presented a way for me to approach you. You created the path. You cleared the road. You set up the highway. You, you, you got the room ready. You did everything that was needed in order for me to come to you and spend time with you. Shouldn't we all be amazed that God would do that? Shouldn't we all be amazed? I mean, it's one thing... God, you brought it, David would say, you brought us out of, uh, out of paganism with Abraham. You brought us out of slavery with Moses. You brought us out of confusion of the judges with a, a king. You, you've done so much. You, you delivered him, he would say. You brought us from wandering around with the tabernacle now to a home in Jerusalem where uh, your temple will be. We should look at the cross and say, God, I am amazed that you would do that because we have no other path to the throne room of God than through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if we have grown bored with that, or if that has become passe in our lives, let's rekindle the, the awe and the reverence for the fact that that cross is why we can pray, why we can come and worship, why we can take our songs of lament and go to the Lord's throne room and say, listen, Lord, consider, Lord, pay attention, Lord. The cross got us there. And we should be as amazed as David. And he says, Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my adversaries. Make your way straight before me. Now, we could take this to mean, Lord, make me better than those people who are coming against me. I'm fairly confident that is not the intent of this psalm. David knew himself. David knew he had a propensity to sin. Does anybody else in this room have a propensity to sin? I'll, I'll raise my hand. I'll admit it. He knew. He also knew that he had a strong propensity to sin when sinned against. Again, you can go back and read some stories of, of David and how he went back and, and how he sought some revenge on people that had not helped him the way that he would have liked. He also had a great propensity for mercy. When God had him, when he was listening, and he could have killed Saul but didn't, that was God acting in his life. That was God restraining him. That was God giving him righteousness 
because of his adversaries. His prayer here is, Lord, I know what I want to do. I know how I want things to end up. I know the revenge that I would like to take. I know, that, I know what I would like to see happen to those people. But instead, Lord, I want you to look at me. And I want you to lead me in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. Not to look to the left or the right and see what's happening around me. But to keep focused on you so that I will live in righteousness in spite of my adversaries, not in contradiction to my adversaries. Lord, I want to enter your house to worship. I, I can do that because of, of your, uh, your love, your loving kindness, your faithful love. But God, this is what's going on in my life right now. Verses 9 and 10, he's rejecting the wicked. God is rejecting the wicked. He, he's, he's going back and saying, I, I've, I, I, I come to you in reverential awe. I want you to lead me in your righteousness. Do you think the king ever got bad advice? Well, seems like he might have. For there's nothing reliable in what they say. Destruction is within them. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Punish them, God. Let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. God, reject the wicked. They are untrustworthy, he says. There's nothing reliable in what they say. David had many, many counselors. Um, any good leader does. I just saw a, a clip from uh, James McDonald yesterday uh, where he was talking about leadership and, and, and the costs, but also the need. Every leader needs counselors, needs people that will come. And not all criticism is bad. There is constructive criticism, criticism that says, here, I want you to hear my heart on this. I want to see uh, you grow. I think this is something that needs to be addressed or taken care of. And every leader needs that. But David had seen his share of those that would counsel the wrong direction. David uh, will understand, it's not likely it's happened yet as far as this psalm is concerned, uh, but David will understand one day the need for someone who will speak God's truth into his life. When Nathan the prophet comes to him to address his sin with Bathsheba, Nathan could have lost his head over that. Nathan could have just, I mean, David could have just wiped him out. You're done, thanks, appreciate the little story, um, y'all kill him. But he didn't. David recognized the truth in the criticism. J David recognized the need that, uh, for his repentance. And that's what happened when Nathan said, You are the man who has killed the uh, family's only little lamb, taken what you didn't need just because you wanted it. Of course, talking about Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. And David responded, that was a trustworthy, a reliable friend, a liable, reliable critic, a reliable uh, counselor. These people were not. 
They were untrustworthy, hence verse 8. Lord, they're untrustworthy, so you lead me in your righteousness. Because of my untrustworthy adversaries, make your way straight before me. I cannot trust them to tell me what I need to hear. He says of these people that they are filled with destruction. Destruction is within them. Their words stink. Their throat is an open grave. That's likely the the image that he was trying to get across, especially in a hot climate. An open grave was not something you wanted. Their words stink. They are putrid. And then they flatter with their tongues. Their slick words allow them to do evil. They say the right things to the right people. And then they are, are able to do evil, uh, violence, and treachery, as verse 6 tells us. And then he asks, verse 10, punish them, God. Let them fall by their own schemes. He asks that they get caught in what they're doing. As harsh as that sounds, punish them. Let them get caught. This is actually merciful. Notice, he does not ask Lord, wipe them out. Take them out. Clear them off the map. May camels trample them. Nothing like that. It's let them get caught. This is a merciful request. This is a merciful punishment, judgment, discipline. And he can ask that because he said in verse 8, Lord, lead me in your righteousness. Let their schemes be found out and let them fall by them. He's saying... God, you handle it. God, this is yours. You take care of this. Uh, This is why I hesitate to do quotes, um, or this is why I said I hesitate to do quotes. I did research this one, and as best as I can tell, Winston Churchill did actually say this. Um, It's credited to him anyway. He said, You will never reach your destination if you stop and throw stones at every dog that barks. He's right. And that's what David knew. Lord, they are not reliable. They're, they're destruction, open grave, they flatter, they, they tell lies, they, they, they're boastful, etc., etc., etc. Lord, I cannot, I can't take care of that. Only you can. So Lord, lead me in your righteousness to respond in your way to what is going on in my life. Drive them out because of their many crimes, verse 10, last half of verse 10, for they rebel against me. That's why you need to keep your Bible in front of you. They rebel against you. This is discipline for God's sake. Isn't it funny how when we put emphasis on words differently, it means something else? This is discipline for God's sake. God, you take care of this. David understood this. He understood it here. He would understand it later on when he wrote the psalm after he was caught with Bathsheba, after the prophet Nathan pointed him out. And he says in his prayer, against you and you only have I sinned, Lord. Now, he knew that wasn't exactly true. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. At this point, he had probably sinned against his entire country in the steps that he took in the midst of that sinfulness. But he also knew that every sin is a sin against the Lord. And he knew that every sin is a detriment to the name of the Lord, especially when it comes to the Lord's people and their actions. When we sin, we 
are tarnishing the name of Jesus Christ. When we sin publicly, when we sin privately, when our sins cause us to fall by our own schemes, that's who we are sinning against, the Lord. And we tarnish the name of Christian. So he's asking for discipline for God's sake. Lord, I'm not going to throw stones at every dog that barks. I'm going to let you take care of this situation. And then he wraps up the psalm with a confident request, verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout joy forever. May you shelter them, and may those who love your name boast about you. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. He goes talking about himself, uh, I, 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 to more of a third person, um, all of us. We, it's still first person, plural, but he's including a lot more people. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. In the midst of lament, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of pain, in the midst of coming to him, coming to the Lord in the morning and saying, Lord, this is what's going on. This is the unrighteousness that you are aware of. I can still say, rejoice. Why? Because he's taken refuge in the Lord. There is no indication that at the end of this prayer, suddenly everything that was going wrong went right. No, he's talking about protection. He can go to the Lord confidently and ask for protection. He knows God will protect, but he rejoices in the presence of of the Lord. He rejoices not in their discipline, not in what's going to happen, not in the, them falling by their own schemes, but he rejoices in his protection. He rejoices in his relationship with the Lord. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Why? Why can he rejoice while taking refuge? Taking refuge automatically implies something bad's going on. You don't take refuge when everything's good. Oh man, I got to tell you, things have been so good in my life, I had to go hide from it. We don't do that. But we can rejoice when we take refuge in the Lord because we know that He will protect us. He vindicates the righteous. Verse 12, for you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor like a shield. Now, I wish... I were rich and fancy, and I could actually own one of these shields, but I don't. Uh, but we're not talking about the little round shield that you would put on your arm, and you, know, you can cover your head, but everything else gets filled up with arrows. This is literally a body shield. It would have been as tall as the man and curved all the way around. And that's why you had shield bearers. You had to have somebody in front of you to take that shield for you while you stood behind it and shot your arrows or, you know, you did your little sword or whatever. Uh, it, it was, so what he's saying is, you surround me. You protect me on all sides. You take care of me in every way. So how, Lord, can I not rejoice even in this uh, time of, of persecution, this time of attack, he is confident that God will protect him. Now, what does that protection mean? Does that mean everything's going to be hunky-dory, fine and dandy, and other fun phrases? Well, David's going to find out, no. He's going to pray a lot of these prayers, a lot of these songs of lament, but he knew that God would never leave him. He knew that he was always in God's hand. So, who is this psalm about? 
Who were these people, his adversaries, as he says in verse 8? The, they boasted and they, uh, they were evildoers and liars and violent, treacherous and uh, destruction. They flatter, uh, so, on and so on and so forth. It, it, who is this psalm about? Obviously, it is to some extent about David's tormentors. He is talking about people that have done things to him. There is absolutely no doubt that there is an external referent to this psalm. But, as the uh, comic strip Pogo said years ago, we have met the enemy and he is us. David understood that he had met the enemy and he was the enemy. We go back. And we take a different perspective on this psalm. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sighing. Pay attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For I pray to you in the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I plead my case to you and watch expectantly. Why is he pleading his case? Why is he watching expectantly? Why is he speaking, sighing, and crying? Because he knows that God is not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you, Lord. The boastful cannot stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. You abhor violent and treacherous people. But I enter your house by your faithful love, the abundance of your faithful love. What did David know about the abundance of that faithful love? He knew that that faithful love covered a multitude of sins. David knew that he was a man who could be wicked, could be evil, could be boastful, could be an evildoer, could tell lies, could be violent and treacherous. So he entered his house knowing that God was faithful, knowing that God loved him, knowing that he could bow down to him in reverential awe, reverential awe because he was forgiven. Lord, I know that I am wicked and evil and can do all these things. So, Lord, lead me in your righteousness. As we said, because of my adversaries, because of what my response could be to those people, I know who I am. I have met the enemy, and he is me. God, there's nothing reliable in what I say. I know that destruction is within me, that my throat is an open grave, that I can flatter with my tongue. Lord, Discipline me. Punish me. Let me fall by my schemes. Drive me out because of my, crime, my crimes and my rebellion against you. But, y'all, this was a prayer of self-examination and repentance. But verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you Rejoice. God, I'm coming to you. I'm rejoicing. Not just because I know you can protect me. Now, you're the God that created everything. I know your power over sin. I know your power over sinful people. I know your power over my enemies. I know your power over those who would come to against you. But I also know, God, that you are powerful over the enemy that lives in me. And that enemy is me. God, you are powerful over over me and that is the protection I need so Lord I can rejoice that you would shelter me from me 
and that when I love your name, that I would boast about you and not me. Because, Lord, you bless the righteous one. You bless the one that comes to you and says, God, I'm a sinner. God, I am not righteous. And I need help. This psalm is a mournful cry of need. And it is worship to our Heavenly Father. When we go to God and say, God, I need you. That is worship. I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. A song of lament. A song of pain. It says, God, there are issues. But the biggest issue is me. It's a cry of need that we need to cry in our lives. The number one cry of need that you need to cry, maybe this morning, is you need to cry out to Jesus to save you. You come to the Lord, you come to God, you pray, and your prayers just don't feel like they get past the ceiling. He doesn't hear me, he doesn't respond. Why could David come to him? Relationship. Today, you need a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that, you can know it. You can know Jesus. You can have a relationship that will allow you to rejoice in the midst of God's presence when you know that the unrighteous one that he needs to discipline is not just out there but in here. But you can only have that if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Your cry of need this morning is for you to admit that you're a sinner that you have broken God's law, that you are separate from him. Let's use David's language, that you are wicked and evil and boastful and evildoer and you're a liar, you, you are violent and treacherous, you are untrustworthy, you flatter, and you're scheming. That's just who we are. That's who we are by nature. And we need to admit that and admit that God isn't. Know that he is going to separate himself from us because... You are not a God who delights in wickedness, and evil cannot dwell with you. So we have to admit that we're a sinner, repent of those sins, turn from that life, and ask God to forgive us. And ask Him to forgive us through Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus is the perfect Son of God who died for your sins, who died to make you righteous, who died to set that path for you to approach God, because you can't. There, there's a barrier that cannot be crossed without the blood of Jesus. And you need to believe that Jesus is that perfect son of God, that perfect gift, gift, that breaker of barriers who died for your sins. Died on the cross, rose three days later to prove he had beaten death, beaten sin. And then you choose to follow Jesus by giving your life to him. Not just a, a mental acknowledgement, not just a, a response, yep, I'm a sinner, you're right, I'm not going to do that anymore, thanks, I'll, I'll, I'll clean it up. Oh, not just I believe, yep, Jesus, oh yeah, I'm, I, oh sure, he died on the cross for my sins, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But to choose to follow him, accept that gift. We've got Operation Christmas Child boxes up here, packed tight, 
full of things that kids all over the world would love to have, will be excited to get. But if we go to that child and say, here, got a box for you, box full of stuff that you're going to love, it's going to be helpful and fun and all this stuff, and that kid goes, thank you. He takes that box, sets it aside, never opens it, never takes it home, never uses what's there. Has he accepted that gift? He acknowledges the gift, understands the gift, believes the gift is there. Certainly, that's, that thing's full of stuff. Those are some great gifts. Thank you. But he never accepts the gift. Don't see the gift of Jesus and set it on a shelf and say, that's nice, that's pretty. Thank you for telling me about it. This morning, accept that gift and choose to follow Jesus by giving your life to him today. Pray with me. God, thank you. Lord, that even as Scripture shows us how to respond to troubles around us, you use Scripture to shine a light on our own hearts. God, you expose our own hypocrisy. And God, we are a church full of hypocrites, every one of us. God, you expose that through your word, and thank you this morning that you've exposed it again. But God, thank you that you don't just expose it and walk away and leave us to rot, but you provide the, the disinfectant, the, the light that shines into that darkness, and a salvation that can free us from this, the, the, the result, the punishment of that darkness in our hearts. God, I pray this morning that if there's somebody here who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they will follow him today. They will admit their sin or repent of their sins, believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and then accept that gift. Choose to follow Jesus. Believe today and be saved. And God, if there is a believer here that this passage has spoken to, and they need to respond in repentance because their, their life has not molded or, or been, been melded with what's described here. We, we, we don't enter in righteousness. We don't trust you. We, we don't rejoice in your presence. We don't find joy, opportunity to, re, to rejoice, even in our lament. Lord, may you change our worship. May believers today worship in their pain. Worship in the negative. And see that it is worship for us to turn and say, God, I need you. That is worship. God, thank you that you work on hearts. Thank you that, that you love us. Thank you that you will not leave us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you provided a way to that throne room to turn so we could go to God and say, listen, hear, respond, and you will. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So whatever your decision is this morning, 
You need to figure out how do you need to respond? What do you need to do? Do you need to accept Christ? Do you need to uh, have that relationship respond to Him? Uh, do you need to get that part right? Do you need to uh, join our church? Do you need to find a place here? Do you need to be baptized? Do you need to just come to the rail this morning and say, Lord, I, I need to give you some things. I need to rejoice in my lament knowing that you are with me and you will never leave me. Whatever it is you need to do, I'll be over here in the left corner to pray with you. Jordan will be over here in the right corner to pray with you. The rails are open for you if you just want to go straight to God. But let's stand and let's sing. And you come to a decision this morning as you do business with God.